Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro, and I want to welcome you to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Our title today is Church History Matters to Your Leadership. Actually, I'm like to say church history and the global church matters to your leadership. And uh, so this is a really large topic, very important, essential, something I am passionate about. And uh, so uh, it's so important to know your story uh, that goes back three to four generations. We call it our genogram because it lives in your bones. We like to say Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. In the same way, when you think of the church, Jesus may live in your church, but church history lives in your bones. Uh, the history of all that's gone before us, we're part of a genogram as a church. And uh, it's so critical and important that we have an understanding of how the past has impacted our present and what are the treasures we want to take forward into the future and also what are the negative legacies that we also want to uh, reject for the future. I like what George Santiana said, the great church historian, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So many of us have a very uh, limited and actually mistaken understanding of how the church unfolded since the book of Acts. And that blind spot has caused us to miss a lot of important lessons from history that really inform us, teach us, and prepare us to face the future. And uh, so, again, a lack of historical memory does great damage to the way we do our leadership, the way we make disciples, uh, and our witness for Christ in the world. Now, I'm aware that uh, most of you who are listening to this podcast are pastors and leaders in churches, but a few of you as well are in the corporate world or in nonprofits. And you might be saying, what difference does church history matter to me or the global church uh, and my own leadership? And the answer is, if you're a follower of Jesus, it matters a lot because who you are in Christ is the largest determinative factor uh, of the kind of influence you're exerting in those who follow you. So it has a lot of impact on you. So uh, let me just begin by uh, just noting that what is it that makes evangelicalism or uh, such a rich tradition? And uh, we've got four major things that just are wonderful about evangelical uh, movement, the Protestant evangelical movement uh, that goes back to the Reformation. One is a big focus on people having a personal relationship with Jesus. The second is our passion to actively reach the world. The third is we've got a deep conviction about Scripture as the Word of God. And uh, fourthly, is a big focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, and those 500-year distinctives dwell in our bones. And that's our stream within the larger history of the church. And I love it. I uh, consider myself an evangelical, uh, you know, a Protestant. I, I, I love the, the, the riches of the last 500 years. But uh, we have a, a big emphasis on doing activity, make it happen. Uh, but we're very bad at some other things like slowing down. Uh, being before we do. And so if we're going to learn about a fully orbed leadership and a fully orbed discipleship, uh, we've got to, one, hold on to our distinct you know, gifts and, and, and distinctives, but at the same time, we've got to learn from the larger church and her mission. So I'm going to give you a, a very quick church history lesson. It's one of the things I, I consider that it's essential, it's, it's foundational to everyone's discipleship. Every believer needs it, but especially every leader. And uh, so I'm going to give you a, 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 a quick bird's eye view, and then I want to get into application to our everyday lives, all right? So uh, there are three main branches of the Christian church in the world today. There's the Roman Catholic Church, there's the Protestant Church, and there are the Orthodox, church, Orthodox churches that are located primarily in the eastern part of the world. I'm talking about the Syrian Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, et cetera, Coptic Church of Egypt. And uh, for the first 1,054 years, there were not three branches. Uh, there was only one church, one branch. 
uh, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What that means is Catholic in the small c, which means it was one universal church. Uh, imagine that for the first 1,054 years, you were either in the church or you were outside the church. Uh, when there was problems or divisions, then what happens was bishops would gather together and they would come from five the five major cities of the Roman and later Byzantine Empire, Alexandria, Rome, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Constantinople. There'd be a problem. They would send these bishops and leaders together and they would have what was called a ecumenical or church-wide council. And they would sort out thorny issues that were confronting the church, this group. Now, the word ecumenical means church-wide, all right? And it's kind of a dirty word today, but it's actually, it just means church-wide. And there was actually seven major ecumenical councils in the first 1,054 years. And they sorted out things like, you know, what's the, what's the, what's script, what are the books of scripture? What, what's the nature of Jesus being fully God and, and fully human? Uh, the person of the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, so the first council, uh, and actually the most important probably was when the Roman emperor summoned all the bishops to determine what's the doctrine for the entire church. And they settled on what's called the Nicene Creed of 325. And actually they came back and revisited it uh, at the second ecumenical council uh, to update it based on some heresies that were emerging to revise it and expand it. And it's called actually the Nicene Creed uh, expanded, you know, it's and uh, 381 AD. And basically what makes the Nicene Creed so important is it defined what's biblical Christian faith as outlined in scripture. And actually it is the reigning document in the whole world today for Orthodox Christianity, whether you're a Roman Catholic, Protestant, or uh, Orthodox uh, in the Eastern part of the world, we all believe in the Nicene Creed. Uh, it outlines the boundaries of Christian belief and what scripture says. So in it is things like, you know, Jesus is fully God and fully human. He died on the cross, rose from the dead for our sins. He's coming again as judge. Uh, he was bodily in the flesh. And basically, if you don't believe in the Nicene Creed, you're considered a heretic or a sect. Uh, and uh, so just understand, like, you may not have never read the Nicene Creed, although there are many churches around the world that read it every week. Uh uh, you believe it. If you're an uh, evangelical, you know, a charismatic Christian in the world today, you believe in the Nicene Creed, uh, and it's a document well worth reading. But what happened is in the first 1,054 years, again, they were all together, they had these councils, uh, but there was gradually tensions that were growing uh, in this one church, and there was a split. Actually, the greatest church split in all of history happened in 1054 AD, when the Eastern Church and the Western Church split. Now, the, the roots of that split are complex. I mean, they are political, cultural, linguistic, theological. But basically what happened was the Bishop of Rome uh, changed the Nicene Creed without consulting the other churches on the eastern part of the world. And he declared himself infallible in matters of doctrine and faith. And so the other cities excommunicated him from the eastern part of the world. He then in turn excommunicated the eastern churches and the eastern and western church split. And based on where you live geographically, uh, determined whether you were in the Eastern Church or the Western Church. So if you lived in France, you know what? You were Roman Catholic. If you lived in Syria, you were going to be, you know, Eastern Orthodox. And then this was followed soon after that, that split uh, by the military crusades uh, from the Western Church into Jerusalem. But on the way to go and to take Jerusalem, they also attacked and pillaged the Eastern Churches along the way. And uh, they destroyed Constantinople, for example, which is present-day Istanbul, and they destroyed all the churches, convents, and monasteries uh, in 1204. And the Western churches did it to Eastern churches, and that opened up a 
deep wound that has not been healed to this day. And so just try to imagine this. The Eastern and Western churches did not speak to each other for 900 years. It wasn't until the 1960s where they actually, you know, had began to talk. So that's the first and the biggest church split in all of history. But then a second one happened, a uh, big split in uh, 1517 in the Protestant Reformation. Now, the Catholic Church in the Western part of the world had grown corrupt, uh, you know, tremendous problems in the church. And uh, Martin Luther uh, was probably the most outspoken one. It was happening actually for quite a while. Well, the number of people beforehand were trying to call the church to reform back to scripture. And uh, basically, the Protestant Reformation began with Martin Luther in 1517. And there was another split of the Roman Catholic Church. And they replaced the authority of the Pope with the authority of scripture. And now each person was empowered to interpret the Bible as they saw fit. It was, you know, very liberating. But since then, the Protestant church has had, you know, about 300,000 splits uh, in it. So uh, you got the first split was 1054, the Eastern and Western church. The second split was 1517, the Roman Catholic and the Protestant church split. But then since then, there's been hundreds of thousands of splits. So to understand when you talk about our churches, you know, I think of my church, New Life Fellowship Church in Queens. Um, you know, we're uh, on that genogram. We're a we're a piece of the of the larger, bigger church. Mm-hmm. Now, every church has problems. I'm I'm not a Roman Catholic, nor am I an Orthodox Christian. Uh, I'm an evangelical, you know, charismatic uh, evangelical Protestant. But every stream of these three main streams has dirty laundry or blind spots, big problems. And I could sit here and criticize the Roman Catholic Church to you. I could sit here and criticize the Orthodox Church to you. Things that I think are problematic there. Uh, but it's important that our own stream, that we recognize our own dirty laundry before we're so quick to judge everybody else. And uh, so things such as, for example, you know, Martin Luther uh, uh, did not like Jews. Uh, he intensely disliked Jews. He wrote essays against them. And the Nazis loved those writings and used to quote them. And uh, so, I mean, that was a big blind spot, his attitude towards Jews. In fact, he also advised the German nobles to slaughter the rebellious peasants uh, without mercy. I mean, he he had a temper. Uh, Zwingli, who was a big reformer in Switzerland, I mean, he drowned Anabaptists. So did John Calvin, people who believed in baptism by immersion. Uh, some were his own former students. I mean, he he believed, I mean, imagine killing somebody because they, they don't believe in infant baptism versus baptism by immersion. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, great heroes uh, of our faith, were slaveholders. I mean, I have African-Americans say to me often, you know, in our church, or say to me often, but at times will say to me, uh, can these, can George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards really have been Christians? I mean, how could they have had slaves? Again, blind spots. I mean, the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Azusa Street in Los Angeles, 1906, a huge outpouring of the Spirit, uh, split over race, resulting in black and white churches uh, in America, you know, for decades. The Protestant missionary movement, 1800s, 1700s, uh, had so many leaders that had failed marriages and family life. I mean, John Wesley, for example, he couldn't live with his wife, uh, and uh, his marriage was deeply uh, troubled. So I say all that because we have a genogram, a history that goes back, Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Orthodox believers. And I meet many Christians who say to me, oh, it's like the Book of Acts, and then it just jumped right over to the Protestant Reformation, and if people aren't evangelical uh, or charismatic— uh, Protestants, then they're probably not even Christians. And uh, that basically, you know, that, that, that the Nicene Creed says, if you think that you're actually a heretic, because there's only one, uh, one church in the world, it's all those who believe in Jesus Christ, regardless of what church you attend as Lord and Savior. So 
You say, Pete, what's, what's all this mean? It means a lot. Here's some applications for your leadership and your discipleship. All right, here's number one. The first is uh, humility. Uh, be a humble learner, uh, all of us. Uh, we have so much that we can learn from brothers and sisters who went before us in history, especially those who are different than us, outside of our tradition. Uh, again, let, let, me, let me say it as clearly as I can. Uh, there's only one church in the world. It's made up of all those who truly believe in Jesus Christ. And those believers are found uh, in uh, Orthodox churches in places like Russia and Syria and Ethiopia and uh, Egypt. And they're found in Roman Catholic churches. And they're also found in even my church and, you know, New Life Fellowship Church. They're found in Protestant churches and Methodists and Presbyterians and independent churches. But it all depends on their relationship with Jesus Christ. The church doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. So therefore, it's not one church that has a corner on all the truth. I mean, it, it's, you know, we have what we believe God's led us into. Uh, but we recognize there's things that we can learn uh, from those around the world. So think, for example, of the millions of believers, literally millions of Christians who died in Russia, Russian Orthodox believers under communism uh, from 1917 uh, through 1991. Think of all the Christians in, in the Mideast, Syria and Iraq, and who, who've been, you know, who've suffered intense persecution. Uh, they have Christians in places in India. Uh, there's so much to learn from the Ethiopian African church. You know, there are deep roots of monasticism. I think of Egyptian Coptics and and some of the most great theologians over history have been Roman Catholics who've done deep thinking about sexuality and marriage and justice and a consistent uh, pro-life ethic from birth to the grave. Uh, and so we just have so much we can learn. In fact, a book was published, uh, now it's in a third edition, by a historian named uh, Philip Jenkins called The Next Christendom and the coming of global Christianity. And I just want to read you something about, he, he writes in his, his introductions, it's so important for us, uh, about the church. He says, in 1900, 83% of the world's Christians lived in Europe and North America. By the year 2050, it's going to be 72% of Christians will live in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. I mean, that's, that's the shift that's happened in the world. In 1900, the overwhelming majority of Christians were non-Latino whites. In 2050, uh, Non-Latino whites will be a very small subset of Christians. So when you think about a Christian uh, today, you're really looking at a Ugandan, a Brazilian, and a Filipino, uh, more than a German or an American. Uh, and so we're, we're in a, I mean, the last hundred years has been a revolution where the center of the church has moved to Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and uh, you know North America and Europe have had huge declines and and uh, and. Many parts of the world, the church is suffering violence and persecution, but it is a exploding. And uh, there's been just a huge population shift. And so there's so much to learn from the global church. Um, and and, and you know, we've had the fortunate blessing of doing some traveling uh, through Emotional Healthy Spirituality, uh, speaking for Willow Creek Association, and again, from, uh, I think, of the different continents around the world. And, and I'm just in, incredulous about the move of God uh, in, in the church around the world. It, it's like nothing I've ever experienced here uh, in the United States. And uh, so, I, in fact, a, a historian friend of mine who's a dean at Fuller Theological Seminary, spends his whole life studying church history, he actually argues that uh, it's no longer three main branches of the church. Uh, he says it's actually a fourth branch, and he calls them the spiritual churches of Africa, China, and Brazil. And that happened in the 20th century that aren't technically Catholic or or Protestant or Orthodox, 
they just emerged independently, so many through dreams and, and visions, or like the holy spiritual churches. And it's a massive movement in the world of uh, churches of, of sometimes hundreds of thousands of people. God revealed himself to someone in a dream, uh, and boom, uh, an explosion happened. So it's, just a, it's, a, it's a fascinating development, again, in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. So uh, again, the call here is to be open and to be generous and learning. We're always learning. Another side note, I, I just finished probably ha you know a good portion of this book on the Reformation by Owen Chadwick. And he, I, I was just interested. I don't know that much detail about Luther and Calvin personality-wise and, and the details of the Reformation. So I just picked it up one day because I was interested in it. And this is probably the leading book on the Protestant Reformation. And what I was so struck by was uh, the kind of person Luther was in his genogram of his family of origin uh, and the kind of person Calvin was in his, again, family of origin, uh, really impacted to this day, the kind of churches, Lutheran churches, as well as the uh, Presbyterian and Reformed churches are, personality-wise. I, I was just I was just so struck by it. And it also, I realized their shadows and Luther's shadow in particular, very much contributed to the level of splits uh, that the Reformation experienced in the 1500s that we experience to this day. Uh, it's really a, it's an ugly side of the Reformation that needs to be seen for what it's seen. But the second application is not simply be a humble learner. It is uh, our need to slow down uh, for Jesus. Silence, stillness, solitude. Uh, when you think about Western evangelical or charismatic Christianity, uh, and we've exported this around the world now. We are overactive, frenetic, and not reflective. So much of the Western church, we can't even see how much we're informed by the culture uh, that's in the church. And, and intellectualism that's so uh, you know scholastic and uh, intellectual versus experientially learning. And so we have so much to learn from the history of the church uh, about slowing down. And again, there's, there's a huge uh, historical stream in the church uh, of monasticism, which is really about taking the tradition of Elijah, Moses, John the Baptist, of you know the desert, and learning to be with God, learning to be still, uh, but an emphasis on an experience with God of the heart, uh, getting rid of all the idols of the heart that we might follow Jesus purely. And so there is just so much to learn from the riches of other streams in history, as well as monasticism, uh, that requires just a generous spirit. I mean, your leadership needs it uh, and our discipleship needs it. In fact, you can't understand emotionally healthy discipleship courses without understanding church history and the global church. Because what I'm doing in those courses is bringing together 1,500 years of lost church history, at least to many Protestants, and bringing them into our discipleship. Uh, so underneath these emotionally spirituality course and the relationships course uh, is a call to a deep being with Jesus, an interior life with rhythms, uh, the daily office, uh, a rule of life, silence and stillness, uh, and then leading or, or following Jesus out of a deep well of being with Jesus. Well, that comes, that's not an emphasis on even in, in, in Protestantism. That emphasis comes out of, you know, second, third, fourth century, uh, you know, and through the history of the church. Uh, but it's in scripture, of course. And what happens is when you're not learning from the global church, uh, we end up having blinders to things that are clearly in Scripture, and we miss them. And the emotionally healthy discipleship courses also are uh, bring the emphasis of, I would call it more the Eastern part of the world, which is a sacramental view of life, that all of life is holy, uh, and it's it's delight. 
uh, and so that we die to the right thing. So there's, there's a, a, I like to say that we, that the world that God created is good. Uh, and he gives us Genesis one and two to delight in the world like he delights in the world. Uh, it's broken by sin, of course, but we want to be dying to the right things and we don't want to be dying to delight. That's why Sabbath delight is such a core principle of EHS, uh, practicing Sabbath because Sabbath is about the stopping and resting and and delighting in, in, in the gift of God given us in creation and all the world. Uh, as one rabbi said to me once, why are you Christians so hung up on sin? All you talk about is sin. Now we are against sin. Uh, he goes, well, what happened to Genesis 1 and 2 about delight? And I said, it's just kind of a, it's, it's, it's a weakness of our discipleship. And uh, so again, I, I like to say emotionally healthy spirituality is basically applying scripture deeply into our lives uh, but it's got at its bottom, you know, underneath it all is a learning from the global church over 2,000 years. Uh, that's why, I, you know, I love history. And uh, someone said to me, someone said, I don't want to do the emotionally discipleship courses. I, I want to do Bible study. And I said, no, this is Bible study. It's just Bible study that's directly applied to your life. So I want to encourage you. Now, as a little side commercial. Hey, if you've not picked up the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship Kit Go to our website and get that kit and, and get into a live stream training of how do I bring this to my church and my ministry and my people. Uh, that is what we are giving our life to, uh, Jerry and I, is to help churches develop disciples that deeply change lives uh, or develop a discipleship that deeply changes lives. And so underneath the discipleship courses, one element is this understanding of, of history. So go to emotionallyhealthy.org and, and check that out. Uh you know, I was with a, uh, a scholar once on a retreat, and she was a PhD from Cambridge. And uh, we were on a retreat together, and she was really puzzled, and, and she was an Anglican. And she said, I don't really understand American Christianity. She goes, you know, how is it that a person with an MBA from one of your top business schools one day declares, I'm going to be a pastor and start a church? They don't understand theology or history, uh, haven't studied scripture in any serious way. Uh, he has, but he just builds a church based on the best business practices that the church resembles more of a shopping mall than anything else. And they really were bewildered. Like they couldn't understand, like, I don't understand like how, the, and, and if you look in the light of church history, it's unheard of. And I said, well, it's kind of a long story. Uh, but that American, in, when we say American Christianity, we want to get rid of the American as much as we can and get biblical in there. And again, my argument is that to be biblical, we have to be willing to look at how the church has functioned over history and then look at the global church so that we get the American idolatry pulled out of our leadership and out of our discipleship making. And again, I love our branch of the church, but our genogram uh, of evangelicalism has a shadow. And if we want a fully orbed biblical Christianity, uh, we've got to be willing to be humble learners from uh, from other branches, and especially around the area of slowing down, of silence and stillness and waiting on God. And if we're going to experience loving union with Jesus, we've got to learn. But that's a challenge. And let me close with a little story here. Uh, in 2003, 2004, Jerry and I took a trip and we went to a place called Taizé in France. And Fran uh, this, uh, this Taizé community was begun by a Lutheran pastor. And he had lived through World War I in Europe, and then he lived through World War II in Europe. And if you remember both war, world wars, he, uh, he observed that you have Catholics, Protestants, and uh, Orthodox Christians killing each other. And he was just like 
blown away by just this unbelievable. And, and uh, in World War II, he hid the Jews. And then when World War II ended, he hid the Nazis, who were then everyone's looking to kill the Nazis. But his whole passion was the unity of the church, you know, John 17. And uh, so he developed a community called Teze, where, where the church would come together, Orthodox Christians, Roman Catholics, and, and Protestants. And he developed the, you know, his community. And then he began to hold these youth camps uh, where young people would come together and they would participate in their rhythm of offices. And so about in, in the summers, five to 6,000 people a week, all young people, or mostly young people, 95%, go to Taizé, France, and they camp. And then they participate with this monastic community centered around unity, of, you know, the Lord. And I, we went there with our family uh, in 2000, I think it was 2003, and we spent a week there. Now, it was an experience that, that was life-changing for me because I believed in one church around the world. I had uh, – I knew a little bit about church history, how important it was that we learned from folks different from us. But I never had an experience of actually being in a place with Orthodox Christians, Roman Catholics, and Protestants mm-hmm. in the same place and had communion together, which is unheard of. And we we did these offices together where we actually had sil- – we, you know, we worshiped at scripture and then we'd have eight to ten minutes of silence three times a day. Uh in these daily offices, morning, midday, and evening prayer. Now, just imagine 5,000 young people under a tent, silent for eight to 10 minutes, three times a day. It was unbelievable. But I, I was an experience of being with Christians from you know Czechoslovakia and Russia and Romania and Greece. And it was, it was, a, it was a shocker. And then, of course, in Roman Catholics, as well as then evangelicals and Protestants from around the world. And it was just, it was so powerful. And uh, so I want to invite you, you know, do your part in God's harvest at your workplace and your local church. You know, God's given you and God's given me a task to do. But when you pray the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. When you say Our Father, I want you to think more broadly, oh, Our, and then think of the Christians in Egypt, and think of the Christians in Ethiopia, think of the Christians in Syria and Iraq and, you know, around the world, Our Father, you know, Latin America, Asia. Uh, and you pray it differently, and that we would love and be humble learners. And just, you know, there's a free ebook that you can get on Church History Matters uh, on our website at emotionallyhealthy.org. And it's you just go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash church history, and you can download a free ebook, about 10 pages, 12 pages, where I kind of take the best of what I've given you here on this podcast, and uh, you can get it there. So emotionallyhealthy.org slash church history and pick up that ebook as our gift to you. Uh, and I pray that you will absorb these lessons and be a more generous, humble uh, leader and disciple maker, and that you too will slow down your life like I'm seeking to slow down your life, that we might be reflective for Jesus. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you wherever you are listening to this podcast today. God bless you. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you.